as we continue in the book of John, the book of John. And we have gone through chapter 9, 10, we've taught through chapter 11, and today we're diving into chapter 12 as we march towards Easter, Passover. And so uh, Tina and I, we decided we're going to start calling it Passover because that's what it really is, Passover. And um, I wanted to systematically work through the scriptures on Jesus' journey to the cross. And so we could experience something similar and we can get a better perspective of it. You see, we are, um, instead of teaching a specific topic where we use scripture to support um, the subject matter, I would rather have Jesus, our author, uh, do Jesus, the author of our Bible, let me say it that way, uh, rather guide the narrative, or maybe even if it's the author of a specific book, drive the narrative. Um, that allows us to have a coherent understanding of how the Bible systematically unfolds. And that is very important for us to know. You know, um, I've, for much of my Christianity, I can tell you about a verse, but I can't tell you about a, a full picture. And uh, so this past week, we were very blessed to have Phil Howell, a uh, minister at, on, on the Wednesday night, <clears throat> in the Wednesday night class. Phil Howell is probably one of the most, I, I call him like, he's a Bible machine, this guy. Uh, he's very, very well learned and versed in the Bible. He's working on his PhD right now. He's got a MDiv. And um, so I think we have some pictures of him, do we, Han? I meant to do this prior to us starting. There's Phil. So he was, he was kind of slouching in order to not look way too much taller than I am. I'm not sitting down. I'm actually standing. And so thank you. You can just slide through them. But Phil is one of about 20 pastors I was, I'm blessed to be able to connect with on a monthly basis. And uh, he's, the, he's the key guy I met with. And I'm looking forward to our next, our next guy. He's a professor at... Um, up at uh, Trinity College, and so we're going to have a wonderful time. We have 60, 60 students in our class, and uh, it's going so well. Thank you for praying for that, and thank you for participating. I think that you guys are going to so love this next guy, Lucas. He's uh, also a pastor, and then after him we'll have Paul Alexander, and so we're stacking up some really good um, teachers for the Wednesday nights. But... Um, one of the things that he really helped us understand is as you read through the Bible, you'll probably see in your Bible that there are certain times where you get like capital letters only. The whole seg- section is written in capital letters or it's an italicized or something. And if you go to the footnotes, you'll find out that that's actually just them teaching the scriptures. That's the actual scriptures. And he gave this great example of if you don't know the scriptures, you, you won't really get out of the New Testament what you should get out of the New Testament, it almost works like, <clears throat> what's the movie that he alluded to? The End Game? Yeah. All the Marvel movies. The Marvel, Marvel movies. So if you know all 20 Marvel movies and you watched End Game, you will find that End Game is reaching back into the past and pulling out um, the roots from which it stems, right? And, and if you didn't watch the first 20 movies, you couldn't quite get as much out of Endgame as you could. But Endgame in itself is good. It's a good movie. But if you had watched the previous ones, you would get so much more out of it. And in the same way, 
you see just how they navigated their way through understanding Jesus, understanding uh, penal substitutionary atonement, how they understood the heart of the gospel and what God's plans were as they consistently um, anchored themselves into what God did beforehand in time. And so it's important for us to have that wide view of what God is doing. See the big picture, because how many of you know if you're too close to something, you don't quite always know what it is. There used to be this TV show where they would show you uh, a picture, right? And you have to guess what it is. And then if you can't guess, then they go one frame larger. And you have to try and guess, and then another frame larger, and you have to try and guess. Until you go like, oh, I see, it's an apple, you know? And you didn't know because it was zoomed in on, the, on, on, on one portion of the apple. But anyhow, in the same way, when, when you zoom out and you get the whole picture of what's going on, uh, there's so much more clarity as to who God is and what God has planned and who God planned it for. So as we, as we look at John chapter 9, we see Jesus healing the blind man. When he healed the blind man, remember they asked him, is this blind man, is this man blind or was he born blind because of his parents' sins or because of his own sins? He was born blind. Jesus said he was blind for neither, but for the glory of God, and Jesus heals him. And at that point, the religious leaders then accused Jesus of being a sinner. Why? Because he healed him on the Sabbath. How dare he? And then we go to chapter 10 and we see Jesus builds a case against the false teachers of Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were in it for themselves. And he then builds a case for himself being the good shepherd. He actually calls himself the door. The only possible way of entering the sheepfold was through Jesus Christ himself. The only possible way of getting into the kingdom of God, he teaches, was through himself only. And as a result of that, we see that the people called him, de him demon-possessed, and they wanted to stone him to death. So then we enter chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, we see Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I love that chapter. And because of this, many came to believe in Jesus, of course, and he became very popular. And as a result of that, from that day on, the Pharisees planned to kill Jesus. Because there was this man who was dead and now is alive, walking around as a testimony to who the real Messiah is. The one who actually conquers death. So to give you some backdrop on John chapter 12, the one we're looking at today, it is six days before Jesus hangs on the cross. We have a group of people serving and having a dinner in honor of Jesus. And the house was filled with radical personalities. I can only imagine what it may have been like thinking about, here's this little house packed full of these personalities. We have Mary and her sister Martha. The Bible says both of them love Jesus. We have Lazarus, their brother, uh, who the Bible says Jesus loved. And Jesus raised from the dead. And not only was Lazarus now a household name in the whole entire known world at the time. I mean, that news spread so quick when Jesus called Lazarus out of the dead or out of the tomb. Everybody 
knew about Lazarus and this man Jesus who was able to raise him from the dead. Not only was he a household name, but the chief priests planned to kill him. Why did they have to kill him? Because he was uh, a living testimony to the validity of Jesus being the Christ. So here's one of the wanted men in the room. Also in the room was the leper who Jesus healed. They were the disciples. I can only imagine the disciples, if you've watched the movie or the TV show, The Chosen, you'll know they kind of developed the, the personality types as history and the Bible tells them to be. But here we have Peter, a really hothead, right? And, and all these disciples, you have, you have Matthew, <clears throat> who was a tax collector and he was very mathematical, probably pretty quiet also. But then you had on the other side of the table Judas, the son of perdition, the son of hell. And then there was Jesus, the reason everybody was there. The one who, was who has literally turned the whole world upside down, the one that Jewish leaders is looking for and wanted to kill. So you had the most wanted, Jesus, at the table. You had the second most wanted, Lazarus, at the table. You had a deceiver, betrayer, Judas, at the table. You had a hothead, uh, uh, Peter, at the table. You had some, a couple of quiet guys. You had Lazarus, of course, who was raised from the dead. Who knows what kind of stories this guy could tell, but yet the Bible doesn't tell us anything about what Lazarus saw or experienced while he was dead. It was just he was dead and now he's alive. So I can only imagine at this point what everybody's perspectives were. Because Jesus, at this point, he had already performed seven major miracles. Jesus turned water into wine, John chapter 2. He heals the official's son in Capernaum in John chapter 4. And then he heals the invalid at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. And then Jesus feeds the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee in John chapter 6. And Jesus walks on water in that same chapter. And then in John chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man. In John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Those are all escalating in power. And uh, I think at this point you can imagine the electricity that was in the air as the house was filled with all these different characters surrounding the central figure, Jesus Christ, who everybody believed was the Messiah. And right at this point, we pick up John chapter 12, verse 1. The Bible says, Therefore, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany with Lazarus, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a dinner there, and Martha was serving again. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. So let's just pause right there and let's look at what just happens here. Martha. I think we need to rescue her reputation, don't you think? If your name is Martha, I'm sure that you've you had a hard time in school. <laughs> the first time we learned about Martha was in Luke where she was complaining to Jesus over the fact that um, you know, her sister was sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking up all the words Jesus was saying, yet she was in the kitchen working hard. And so she goes, Jesus, 
Are you not going to tell my sister to at least come and help me? So here she is complaining, and this is where her reputation started. But I think we need to redeem her reputation because there's something beautiful about Martha, something lovely about Martha, memorable to the point where she was put into the Bible. So we see that in Luke chapter 10, verse 41, Jesus actually answered her when she said, Hey, Jesus, how about you tell my sister to come and help me? I'm doing all the work here. Jesus says to her in verse 41 of Luke 10, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. This is a warning to people who, who serve, and we all should serve in different degrees. But this is a warning to those who serve. And um, that is, don't get overly distracted by too many things because remember why you are serving remember who you are serving remember who you're doing this for and uh, I can tell you personal experience as a pastor you have to always work at making sure you don't position yourself as somebody uh, receiving um, receiving a, a uh, let me say it this way a favor from somebody else. You know, when I serve you in Jesus' name, I am serving Jesus. And it's great for you to say thank you, but at the same time, you have to realize that it's done unto the Lord, right? We're all serving the Lord when we serve His body. And so Jesus was helping Martha just correct her perspective. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and distracted by many things, but only one thing is necessary. Remember this. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So here in the book of John, Martha again is said to be serving. Martha obviously has a strength. You have to see it as a strength. And that strength, that gift, is the gift of hospitality. The Bible mentions that as a gift. She was practical, which meant... It was natural for her to show her love for Jesus in a practical way because that's how she was, practical. Serving was Martha's way of showing love. Serving is, in fact, an attribute of Jesus. Matthew 20, 28, Jesus did not come to be served, but He came to do what? He came to serve. So we see this is an attribute, this is a characteristic of Jesus. And Martha has this gift of hospitality and serving. So we need to see the beauty in that because that is her expression of love. She loves by serving. That's a message to us. To serve from the heart with the right motive is to love in a very, very real way. You see, Martha loved differently than her sister loved. She did not love the same way as Mary did, but she loved in a way that put her in scriptures forever. She served. Let's go to verse 3. The Bible says, Mary, now shifting to the next sister, Mary then took a pound of very expensive perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped His feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Here's Martha loving on Jesus. And here comes a sister, and a sister loves on Jesus in a very different way. And the house is filled. 
with serving, with laughter, with chatting, and with loving on Jesus. You see, Mary obviously also loved Jesus, but we see in this book, in the book of Luke chapter 10, that Mary was um, of the kind where she saw everything else <clears throat> as insignificant in comparison to sitting at Jesus' feet, and Jesus validated her for it. Now, here in John chapter 12, we find Mary going beyond just sitting at Jesus' feet. This time around, she now anoints his feet with this very, very expensive oil. Not only does she anoint his feet, but she also wipes his feet with her hair. So we, we can learn three ways in which Mary loved. Number one, Mary lo Mary's love was expressed in extravagance. Mary's love was expressed in extravagance. She found the most expensive possession that they had. You can imagine her running around the house. Okay, where's that most, the, the most expensive thing I have? And she took it and she spent all of it on Jesus. You see, Mary's kind of love gives what, without calculating the cost of what's left, but she calculated the cost of what's most valuable. See, some people love upwards, other people love downwards. What do you mean to say love? So you, you can count some people's love, it's upwards. You know, like people are looking for, what's the most valuable thing I can do? Think about it when, when a guy falls in love and is completely head over heels in love with somebody. I mean, he can live on, he can live on f love and fresh air, right? He can give away everything he's got. He's so, because when a person loves, like she loved Jesus at least, and this wasn't a romantic love. It was connected to what's the most valuable thing I have. I want to spend it all on Jesus. That was Mary's kind of love. Mary's kind of love has only one regret, which is that there wasn't more to give. This, so the first thing we see is Mary's love was expressed in extravagance. Secondly, we see that Mary's love was expressed in Humility. Humility. She could have anointed Jesus' head, something that was very common during those times. But she didn't. She washed his feet. That was the position of humility. That was the, that's the most humble thing you can do for somebody as you serve them by washing their feet. And thirdly, we see that Mary's love was untouched with the distraction of self-awareness. Her love was untouched or untainted, let me say it that way, with the distraction of self-awareness. Maybe it will be good to compare this to dating versus courtship in a way. Because, you know, Tina and I, <clears throat> we've already told some people in our family, we only court, right? <laughs> and uh, the reason for that is because, and I'll define it because I know so many people ask me about this all the time. When you date, you are touched and tainted with a distraction of self-awareness. When you court, not so much so. But when you date, you, you, are, you are putting the nicest foot forward all the time. Because what are you trying to do? Impress, aren't you? 
She's trying to impress him. He's trying to impress her. And the only way I can impress the one I want to date is by showing my best side, right? And so dating has that in it. Courtship has less of it in it because courtship is, is about two worlds coming together. It's really dating with an agenda, dating with a timeline. It's um, dating with all of the pieces out on the table. It's like, all right, two worlds coming together. Let's talk about this. I got my pastors involved, my parents involved, my friends involved, everybody. Because marriage is two worlds coming together. That's what it is. And uh, two people with two histories coming together. And courtship is about like, all right, you know what? Um, this is where they come from. This is where he comes from. This is where she comes from. And these are the possible ch possible. Uh, challenges and let's see if they can handle each other's downsides and all these things are discussed but in dating not so dating is kind of secretive and it's just all the the best foot forward at all times just about because it's a means of impressing but here Mary's love and again I don't, I don't mean to connect this to romance at all but we can understand it as we relate it to the heart. But Mary's love was untouched with this distraction of self-awareness. You see, it was impossible for a person, or it is possible for a person to express their love to somebody else only because of how it makes them feel when they express their love. It is not that they love the person, but that they love the feeling they have when they love somebody else. You see, it is, it is in love with love or it is completely taken by the sentimentality of the romance. You see, romance, romance requires imagination. And people sometimes love to live there because it does something for them. It's like when somebody, uh, let me not go there, then... There are those who love others because they want to be loved back. I'm just trying to find somebody that'll love me, you know. And so they love people in the hopes that they will be loved back. Mary, however, had none of that. The love that she showed Jesus that day in that house had something pure about it because... She wasn't looking to buy anything. She was looking to honor somebody with the value that she possessed. She was looking to honor them by humbling themselves before them and not puffing herself up and making herself look like something. She was, as a matter of fact, completely uninterested in what she appeared to be. And I'll prove it to you. She loosened her hair and wiped Jesus' feet with her hair. You see, in Palestine, it was completely unacceptable for women to wear their hair down. When you get married, your hair is pinned up, and so it shall, shall remain for the rest of your married life, which is forever. They never let their hair down, especially not in public. But here's Mary honoring Jesus wiping his feet with her hair. Mary didn't care what others thought or said of her. Of course, people looked and they, and they, they were shocked. 
But she didn't care. She loved Jesus in a way that was obvious that she wasn't looking to be loved in return. Neither was she looking to be accepted by others, <clears throat> celebrated in any way, or to gain from her love from, for, G, uh, for Jesus. She only desired to give to the one she loved. Verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, it's so interesting, it goes from pure Martha, pure Mary, risen Lazarus, Judas. It says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who intended to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the proceeds given to the poor people? 300 denarii <clears throat> equaled one uh, year's worth of wages. 100 years worth of wages. Is what it says. <laughs> Guess how much, Jesus, how much Judas sold Jesus out for? 30 pieces of silver. And 30 pieces of silver was four months of wages. And so here's Judas. He comes up on the scene. The Bible says in verse 6, now he, uh, now he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Not because, because he cared about the poor, because he was a thief. And as he kept the money box, he used to steal from what was put into it. Oftentimes, people will, thieves will get what they're looking for by doing what? Pointing to the poor. We see it even in our world today. Verse 7, therefore Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. It is interesting how twisted, how distorted, and how skewed a person's perspective can become when that person is deceived. When I am deceived... I mean, and when you are deceived, that's the, least, that's the time you can least trust your own perspective. Think about it. Here is Judas. He is sitting opposite, possibly, I'm imagining, opposite Lazarus, who was raised from the dead. This guy was dead and is now alive. He's sitting next to a guy that had leprosy and is now healed completely. Then he sees how Martha loves on Jesus by serving Him selflessly and diligently. And then after which He sees Mary extravagantly, lavishly, and all humility love on her Savior. And then He goes, what a waste. What a waste. You see how skewed a deceived person's perspective can be. Why do you think the world is so filled with different perspectives, so very contrary to each other. Because everybody's deceived in some point because every one of us have a blind spot, but we are deceived in different degrees over different issues. So here we find a great principle of truth, which is that we do not see life as it is. We see life as we are. Judas did not see things for what they were. 
Lazarus, raised from the dead. Leper, healed completely. Seven great miracles just took place. And the miracle worker is sitting right in front of you. And people are loving on him sincerely. And yet at the same time, he could only see the wrong in all of it. Because you do not see life as it is. You see life as you are. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Judas could not see the beauty of Mary's love for Christ because of the evil in his own heart. William Barclay's daily study Bible says, and I quote, A man's sight depends what is inside of him. A man's sight depends on what is inside of him. See, when, when sincere and heartfelt honor is given to Jesus like Mary did, the hostility of those who belong to Satan will always be triggered. When somebody honors Christ in all sincerity, the, those who belong to Satan, their hostility towards you will be triggered. If you decide today that you will honor Jesus Christ with your life, you will see the world become more hostile toward you. That is, that is where we are going in this segment. You see, Jesus, something incredible, which shows just how, how God ordains all things. Now, this might shock you, but do you realize that the Bible says God ordains evil? Do you realize that? Well, Judas was evil. God ordained him. Why? Because he needed that to happen right there. Why? Because he was six, six days away from having to give himself on the cross. And the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Jewish people, <clears throat> the Roman soldiers, Pilate, all of them together worked in harmony. It was all orchestrated as God brought His plan to be right at the right time. Let's go to verse 9. Verse 9. I'll show you something. And uh, no, I'm not. Sorry. I thought I had it right here. I wanted to read you something. <laughs> Actually... If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 4. Really? Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. Sorry, I, my phone died, but then it came right back home. Listen to this quick. If you, if, you, uh, if you want clarity as to what I just said about how God orchestrated, the Bible says that He ordains evil. Uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 27. For truly in the city... They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. You anointed Jesus and gathered together against him was both Herod and Pontius Pilate 
along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purposes predestined to occur. Acts chapter 4, 27 and 28. Let me read it to you again. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand, God, whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. God orchestrated all of that on perfect timing. Perfect timing. Let's go to verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that He was there. They learned that Jesus was there, and they came, but not on account of Jesus only, so they might also see Lazarus, whom He raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So here, the Jews now have found out where they were, and they were all in the same house, uh, both most wanted people, Jesus most wanted, but Lazarus too. They were going to kill him just as well because they needed to get rid of the evidence. But God is all the while at work. I mean, it looks like it's a horrible situation. But guess what? God was the one who planned all of it. It's shocking. He ordained all of it. He timed it all perfectly. See, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were in many ways into a, in a very difficult situation because the Roman governor was very lenient and he offered a lot of freedom and allowed the Jewish leaders to rule themselves. However, at the slightest outbreak of civil disorder, the Roman governor's hand, he would, he would, he would uh, drop the gavel and he would strip them of all of their rights and strip them of all of their power and strip them of all of their authority and they will come in like a big bully and make sure that there's peace in the land. And so the Jewish leaders really had a lot of freedom to rule and reign as long as everything goes well. But here's the problem. Jesus causing big ruckus, turning the world upside down. Jesus was continually winning over followers at a fast pace. And they therefore saw him as somebody who could have who could lead a full-blown rebellion. And on top of that, the Sadducees had a theological crisis on their hands because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and here's a dead man walking around. So now everybody's going like, hey, I thought you didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, but this guy, Jesus, he's making dead men walk. And so they had a crisis, and they could either change the theology in order to match their crisis, or what they could do was they could just kill the evidence and so fix the whole situation. So in closing today, it is interesting for us to see how Jesus, as He takes John chapter 1 all the way through to John chapter 11, is three years of His ministry. And then from John chapter 12, for all the rest of the chapters, it's one week. Everything escalates. Suddenly, he starts teaching at a higher pace. But on top of that, something else is happening. 
This is the chapter of John. We see the polarization between love and hate. The more intense the believer's love became for Jesus, the more intense the, the unbeliever's hatred towards Him escalated. You see, Jesus always divides everything. And that's why I, I, I would love for us to look at the Bible at a, more, at a wider perspective because you can, uh, you can very often fall into a sentimental perspective of, oh, God is love and, and, you know, and that's wonderful. God loves all these little children that He made. And those things simply aren't true when you see the whole perspective of Scriptures. Here Jesus comes to divide. The closer he comes to the cross, the more divisive he becomes. And when he turned the water into wine, people loved him for it. By the time he came to the seventh miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead, now everybody just, everybody just needed to kill him and Lazarus. See how everything escalates? The closer he comes to the cross, the more divisive everything becomes. But what really is happening isn't that things are becoming more divisive, because he's causing it so much, it's the response to who he is. It's the closer Jesus came to the cross and the closer Jesus came to people, the, the clearer the truth about who they were came to the fore. I'll give you an example. Jesus has 12 disciples. One of them, Matthew, a tax collector, a mathematician. I mean, Matthew is great with money. Well, Jesus has a ministry, and he has a treasurer. He needs a treasurer. Guess who he gives the money to? Judas, the guy he knows is a thief. Jesus is just about bringing the real thing about you and me out all the time. And that's what's happening. Jesus enters in, in this last week of his life. Oh, did things become divisive. Love escalated. And at the same time, hatred for him escalated. He divides our calendar. He divides everything. Everything before him is B.C. Everything after him is A.D. He divided humanity. On the one hand, people who are for him. On the other hand, people who are against him. But nobody gets to remain neutral. Nobody. I don't know if you've ever noticed that about Jesus. People are neutral about a lot of religions. When it comes to Jesus, like, mm -mm. nope. Too exclusive. Don't like it. He divides families. He did not come to bring peace. The Bible says he came to bring a sword that divides. He divides believers from unbelievers. He divides the sheep from the goats. He divides the wheat from the tares. When he comes back, he touches the mountain. The mountain splits. When Jesus cried, it is finished, tetelestai, then in the temple... That whole entire curtain ripped in two. Everything Jesus touches rips in two. And we see as Jesus comes toward his last week, love and hate, love and hate escalates. And I want to leave you with this one thought. You know, this is why Jesus said, Blessed are those who are not offended. In me. Blessed are those who are not offended in me. I don't want to go to the next verse because that's where we start with Jesus coming into Jerusalem and we have Palm Sunday and that's happening in a few weeks. 
But you'll see the same thing. Those very same people who cheered for him, hated him, just days later, called for his death. And the question that you and I have to ask ourselves, are we ever offended by how God has chosen to ordain His plan of salvation. His plan of salvation. I find more and more that people love the Jesus of their imagination. But when it comes to studying Jesus, people are very perplexed and people have major problems. You and I need to decide, do we love and is our love going to escalate? Because the more we get to know Jesus, one of those things become very true for us. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, thank you.